You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. This week's Christian Humanist Podcast. This is David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. This is our episode 85. We've hit another another round five number, which I, I feel good every time we hit one of these. Um, it's nice to keep your your goals that you feel good about it, uh, uh, good about it, achievable increments. Um, this is also Manageable the third outcomes assessment, David. Oh, oh no, don't even. Um, <laughs> as is also the third panel of our Federalist paper triptych. Uh, if you've been listening to the others of those, if you haven't, go back and review before you listen to, before you listen any further. This is part three on presidents. Uh, but before we dive into that, uh, I need to introduce the uh, the peanut gallery that just dove in there. Uh, first was Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you this morning, Michael? I'm good. How about you, David? Eh, eh, <laughs> ah. Midterm grades. Yeah, which... Oh, I hear that. Yeah. 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 So, well, midterm grades, and on top of that, this coming weekend is homecoming, and I'm the yearbook advisor. Nice. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you turned yes. in your midterm grades yet, David? Oh, good God, no. Okay. So you're, you're still waiting to turn them in before the inevitable flood of what can I do to improve my grade emails come in. Yeah, it will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should, we should have a show where we do nothing but read those emails. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm afraid that might be a FERPA violation, though. Yeah. We could change all the names to Dummy McDummerson. <laughs> um, uh, the 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 voice of moderation that you heard in the background at that suggestion was Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English. Doctor Nathan Gilmore, assistant <laughs> professor of English, at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this morning, Nathan? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, since our semester started, uh, it feels like a month before you two did. Uh, yeah. My midterm grades are a couple weeks in my past already, and we are forging ahead to the end of the semester. So uh, I'm also on fall break today and tomorrow, so I'm feeling good about that. Uh, the green-eyed monster. <laughs> well, you know, when you're on fall break, David, the, Nathan and I will have nothing to look forward to but Thanksgiving. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> we, we each take our turn, I guess. Anywho, um, before we get jump into this, uh, you know, old political stuff, um, we got any leader uh, listener feedback, Nathan? Yes, we do. First of all, on the blog, uh, aside from the HuffPo controversy, which is still roiling, uh, I. <laughs> Oh dear heavens! I you know I I like I've said before I stand by what I wrote. I think it's true, but it's getting tiresome. Uh, I think that thing's up towards a hundred comments now, and I've just stopped trying to interact with it. Uh, there are also a a new round of angry atheists online writing essays about what a jerk I am. So uh, yeah, a little tiring. But on a happier note, uh, listener Ken one four five. Uh, that's his screen name anyway, uh, has been listening to our podcast. He uh, heard the Heidegger episode and liked it. Uh, he also listened to, oh, which other one did he mention? I can't even find it now. But uh, he's been listening, he's been reading, he's been enjoying. Uh, so, Ken145, thank you for jumping in. And I'll go ahead and say that uh, if you're in your early 20s, don't worry about not having read Heidegger yet. Uh, Seriously, I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could not understand Heidegger until I was 30, and I needed Michael Farmer's help for that. 
Oh, so, I always tell my students that I read that for an, a year and a half with the smartest person I know, and I still got about 15% <laughs> of it. Yeah, so the, it, it is a tough book. So uh, on the blog, by the way, I, I am reposting a series of essays I wrote on that after Michael and I read it together three years ago. Uh, they initially appeared on uh, Hardly the Last Word, but when that site went down, all the formatting got buggered. So I am sort of reformatting it, rewriting some opaque passages uh and putting them back on the blog so Opaque if you're in passages in heidegger commentary i just can't imagine yeah. <laughs> uh in other listener feedback brad warfield's been commenting on the podcast thank you brad uh for taking me to task on some uh lack of clarity especially in these federalist papers episodes uh, uh he is you know showing his civics chops for us which is good stuff and finally, I got an email uh, either late last night or early this morning. When you get to be my age, that's about the same thing. Uh, from listener Eric Walter, uh, who I won't read his entire email because he sent it to me individually. But uh, to summarize, he's been listening. He's been enjoying. Uh, he's actually picked up and read uh, Paradise Lost because we're always talking about Milton. Uh, so, I mean, you know, good stuff on that front. He also says, and I'm going to sort of pitch this to you guys and then I'll write a longer email to him as a response. But, uh, he is like the three of us, a teacher at a Christian school in California. Uh, and I, I smiled when I read this, I'll go ahead and read this line verbatim, uh, due to the size of the school, each member of the staff and faculty is accustomed to wearing multiple hats. Even if we look silly. <laughs> and I said, you know, uh, I think that describes the uh, the job of just about anyone who teaches at a small Christian school. Uh, you end up taking on tasks for which you never saw, thought yourself suitable, and you yeah. either grow into them or you don't. <laughs> well, certainly you get accustomed to being part of the silly hat brigade. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but he is now in charge of teaching uh, the upper division rhetoric course, uh, he says that he is walking his students through Aristotle's rhetoric, which is always a good uh, starting point for that. Uh, but he asks us, uh, you know, what other resources would be appropriate for teaching rhetoric at a Christian school? So I'll let you guys take a quick swing at that, and then I'll take a quick swing, and then, like I said, I'll write him an email. Didn't we do, like, a series on that? Yeah, yeah, Richard I mean, we did, yeah, we did Richard Weaver, <laughs> so certainly, I mean, you know, language is sermonic is always good stuff. Are there any other rhetoric resources, though, that you guys would immediately recommend? Uh, Farnsworth's classical English English rhetoric, it, it goes through the, uh, you know, it, it's not about the morality of rhetoric or the theory behind it, but it's about the different tools at your disposable, disposal not disposable and you uh and it, and it gives you examples from the best that's been written in english it's an excellent readable even kind of fun book that i used last year in advanced grammar and composition very good cool and the only other thing that i'd add to that is you know a read through at least fourth book of augustine's uh on christian teaching or de doctrina christiana uh, would be worthwhile, if not for student consumption, well, certainly for the meditation of someone trying to teach rhetoric to Christians. What Do we know what school this guy's at? Or are you just, are you just not telling us? I'm, I was just curious. Well, I, I, since he sent me the email personally, I, I decided just to reveal a general location. Okay. You know, I, again, he didn't ask for privacy, but I, you know, just wanted to respect the fact that he sent it not to the Christian humanist, but to me individually. I was just being nosy. No, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> uh, so uh, that I believe sums up the listener feedback this week, David. So I'll, I'll kick it back to you. All righty. Then I'll pick it up and look at it for a while and then figure out, the, Oh wait, I am at the helmet. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Federalist Papers Part 3, this week we're going to be talking about uh, the office of the president, which... Uh, Is in the time, shape of an oval. Yes, yes, ovular. Um, uh, egg <laughs> sh Ah, I just realized what that word means. It means shaped like an egg. Yes. Okay, sorry. Latin is handy. 
It, it, it is. It is indeed. But we're not talking about eggs or Latin. We're talking about <laughs> presidents, the Federalist Papers. Anywho, um, our, the ones that we're reading this week are – I'm having to do this from memory – 67, 69, 74, and 77? That is correct, sir. All right. Sweet deal. I wrote them down so, on my bookmark. So if you ha- have your handy little, you know, bound back pocket edition of the Federalist Papers that you always keep with you, um, <laughs> you can look it up there. Um, well, bef- before we dive into what the Federalist Papers uh, uh, argues that a president should be, well, they, they had they had lots of uh, doubters apparently at the time. And Nathan, I kind of knew in a vague way that anti-monarchical sentiment was, you know, high during and after the revolution, but I imagine <laughs> yeah. that it was mainly aimed at George III. Um, but I don't know, maybe my impression is a little bit different after reading Federalist 74. What sort of rulers do the opponents of the Constitution fear? Well, the the most common comparisons they make are actually uh, ancient medieval uh, emperors uh, you know, they go to Caesar, as you would expect, but they also go to the uh, sultans of the Ottoman Empire. They also go to uh, the emperors of the ancient Asiatic powers, the Persian Empire, in other words. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of things floating around uh, Hamilton this week. It is Hamilton, right? Not Madison. Yeah, Hamilton yep. uh, de- actually describes uh, an editorial cartoon of uh someone labeled president sitting on, you know, a very, uh, Persian style throne with, you know, a glorious robe and all these sorts of things. And he says, all right, you know, uh, one of the tasks in front of us then in these essays for the newspaper is going to be to demonstrate that in fact, this is nothing like an emperor. Uh, it isn't even like a King of England, which is a far more limited office. And in fact, in some ways it's even more limited than the, governor of new york uh so i mean it's one of those things you know it's definitely a window into the time you know because like you said david anti-monarchical fever was so intense uh anything that even resembled a king was very 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 suspicious and you know about the only um about the only comparisons within my own lifetime i can think of are you know the bandying about of the terms fascist and communist uh, in our own political discourse, right? Uh, You know, if anything even resembles a strengthening of central state power, someone is bound to cry fascist. Uh, If anything, you know, uh, raises taxes or even refuses to lower taxes, then someone's going to cry communist, uh, so, I mean, it, it really is one of those things where, you know, if you want to see what the devil terms were 250 years ago, or 220, I guess, uh, you know, reading Federalist 70, uh, blah, 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 69 and 74, I mean, we'll give you a good look into that. Yeah, I, I, I was I, – it was really funny to me because when when he starts saying there are people who object to this, I was expecting a rehash of – you know Milton's tenure of king and magistrates, or something. Right, right. And apparently, uh, they went all Orientalist. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Which was ca- kind of hilarious. Apparently, uh, what was the the one where they were talking about a, f- a fear of the, the president of the United States having a seraglio? Yeah. Uh huh. I had to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've been taught to tremble at the terrific visages of murdering Janizaries and to blush oh, that's at right. oh, the yeah. mystery of the future seraglio. So yeah, I, I, I mean, forgot to mention the Janissaries. That was my favorite reference in today's reading. <laughs> I, our president is going to have a bodyguard of Janissaries. <laughs> Lord have mercy. What now? Now, how are the Janissaries like and unlike the Secret Service? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. Where do you start? Uh, But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, that, I mean, because the Janissaries were such a, again, a devil term, you know, in that period, uh, it's amazing that, you know, that's what gets associated with the office of president. 
And by the way, I mean, David, do you want to give a quick summary of what Janissaries are, or should I? Please do. Oh, yeah, all yeah, right. The, the Janissaries were basically uh, white children uh, that were kidnapped by the Ottoman Turks and raised to be basically the most ferocious elite soldier corps in the Ottoman Empire. And, you know, the the great horror of it was that, you know, they were being put out front, you know, they were the vanguard of the invading armies so that these white European kingdoms would get their guards ready and the first wave of attackers wouldn't even be dark-skinned Ottoman Turks, uh, but it would be white folks, you know, yelling Turkish battle cries and charging the, charging the fortress. So, you know, I mean, it was one of those things that, you know, uh, there, there was the sense of betrayal, there was the sense of alienness. I mean, it was basically the... Basically, every 1980s stereotype about KGB agents, but amplified. Mm. Or, or every stereotype from the last 10 years, let's get more recent. Every stereotype about the Arab terrorist, but, you know, it would have been... Well, I mean, it would have been the kid from California, right, who joined John the Taliban. Walker Lind. Yeah, that's yes. the one. You know, Army of John Walker Lind's. Yeah, he, he is our sort of modern Janissary. Mm. Except he, the, the Janissaries would have been kidnapped, right? So... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, talk about Stockholm Syndrome. Um, I'm not sure where the American president is supposed to get his those, like Canada or something. Right, well, right. Because, him, David. Yeah, because the president is actually white himself, so I... <laughs> Maybe he's kidnapping Turkish children. There you go, there you go. All righty. <laughs> Anywho, well, if that is what was feared in American presidents, which, which really, really surprised me. Um, I guess we need to correct this or, or let Hamilton correct it. Uh, Michael, what sort of ruler is the president as the Federalist Papers envision that office? How does, uh, I mean, how does Hamilton present the powers of the president so as to counter this rhetoric? Well, he says rather uh, incredibly that the president has just a little bit more power than the governor of New York State, and sometimes he has less power. So he, <laughs> he certainly positions him as a weak ruler. Um, his power is limited by being elected every four years, although, of course, of course, there weren't actually term limits until the 20th century. Everybody followed George Washington's example and only taking two offices until uh or two terms rather until fdr who took i think was it four and he died during the last mm -hmm. one and so at that point you know they instituted term limits um also he is able to be impeached and censured by the legislative branch which we talked about last week mm -hmm. um he can send bills through but they have to be approved by two-thirds of the house and senate so he doesn't really have legislative power uh, he is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military. I know we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, so I won't dwell on it here. Uh, he's able, as we, again, uh, as we discussed, to grant reprieves and pardons, but even there, he is limited by impeachment, so he can't, he's not able to pardon anyone who's been impeached. And Hamilton points out this is one area where he is weaker than the governor of New York, because mm -hmm. the, the governor of New York was apparently able to pardon impeached people. Uh, he can make treaties, but only if he has two-thirds of Senate approval, unlike, uh, say, the King of Great Britain, who uh, was able to make treaties on himself. He can ask Congress to make certain laws, but he can't demand it. Again, you have to have that two-thirds. He can convene Congress, and if they can't agree about when they want to adjourn, he's allowed to make that call. I, I found that power pretty funny. I, I don't know if, if that's ever been utilized. <laughs> Right, that's he, called the the Br'er Rabbit power. <laughs> yeah. If they can't decide when it's time to break for lunch, I suppose the president can say, "12:30, and be back here by 1:15." Oh no, Mr. President, don't throw us into a break. Ah, <laughs> uh, the imperial presidencies of yesteryear. <laughs> um, he, his his job, of course, is to make sure that the laws that are passed by the legislative branch are executed. And that's where you get the term executive branch. Mm -hmm. um, so he can commission U.S. officers, but he's not allowed to create the offices himself. And he can receive ambassadors, but that is mostly a thing about di uh, dignity rather than 
any kind of practical power. So, right, right. Really, as Hamilton sees it, he has a, a rel- relatively limited scope of influence. Now, as the centuries have worn on, his scope of influence has gotten stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that uh, in just a minute when we talk about him being commander in chief. Sure. But uh, at least as Hamilton envisions it, it's a it's a small, not powerless, but not powerful office. Right, right. And I, I'll say, um, just to add to that, Michael. I mean, uh, wh- which number is that? Is that number sixty nine? It's the seventy four. It's the second one we read, so I think it's sixty. Okay, sixty nine. I mean. What a glorious piece of rhetoric. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, to say, well, you know, let's take uh, three points of this triangle, one of them being the King of England, one of them being the President, and one of them being the Governor of New York. And, then, you know, I mean, just the way that it's framed, the way that it's executed, I mean, it is just a masterful display of rhetoric. You should, you should have your uh, friend in California teach that. There you go. Teach it next to uh, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which does the same thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Well, except that it turns out that the governor of New York had Janissaries, so <laughs> I, I don't know how helpful that was going to be. Yep, kidnap southern children. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For a well, minute, David, he... I couldn't tell if you were joking or not. Yeah, I'm I'm joking. No. But I haven't heard that. So, so far as I could tell, the governor of New York did not have Janissaries. Though it does sound like a quitty, a, a pretty sweet gig, especially the you know, the times when he says, "Oh, and by the way, the the governor of New York has more power as an executive at this point." I thought, huh? He's being a little bit dishonest there, though, because obviously the governor of New York Is he? does. Yes, he, the governor of New York may have more power over New York than the president has over the entire country. So relatively more power, but obviously on an absolute level, the the president has more power than the governor of New York, because the governor well, of New York but, has no say but whatsoever. But he's not talking in, in about the he's not talking about the extent of jurisdiction. He's not talking about power in that degree, but just what powers does he have? I I, I found it to be a little bit dishonest, a little bit misleading the way he kept saying less power than the governor of New York. Okay, I, I thought it was pretty brilliant. Though, though I don't know. I mean, it, I, I don't have a really good sense of what the what the governors of the early colonies, um, what what they could and couldn't do. I, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does mention that New York had its own uh, militia, obviously, and but its own navy as well. So, you know, that that's one of those <laughs> things that what. Sorry, I'm just imagining the navy of New York. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, the, all of their ships had pinstripes and... Fleet Week. Uh, what now? Fleet Week. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Dutch names on the sides. Hamilton <laughs> Hamilton was himself a New Yorker, so I'm sure he knew that, that state better than... Oh, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we kind of already uh, alluded to the first power that I do want to talk about. Um, I'll let you field this one, Nathan. Um the commander in chief. Now, th- I think this is one of the this is one of the president's more impressive titles. I've always thought. I mean, that's that's a pretty sweet title. I mean, in fact, I think I might go by that instead of president. Um, so wait, are you the president of something, David? No, I mean, if I were, you're the commander in chief of of Central's yearbook. Yeah, no, <laughs> that would imply that I had an army and a navy. <laughs> An army of yearbook workers, an army of photographers combing the land looking for students who haven't been in the yearbook yet. And a large enough Navy to protect the entire coastline of <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I do have that. <laughs> anyway, so how, how does the Federalist Papers – how do the Federalist Papers present the power of, of commander-in-chief? Well, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, particularly, I mean, is this comparable to what other national executives had at the time as as kind of military power? And do you get an awesome like patent style uniform? Because that all be, right, that'd be sweet the, too. Let, let me address the patent style uniform first. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Constitution, you know, lays out the civilian control of the military as one of the central ideas. So, I mean, you know, the uh, the the concept of a military dictatorship really wasn't around yet 
although the world would quickly enough see one with the rise of Napoleon. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where the elected officials were to be the supreme power. Uh, so, I mean, there, there wasn't a sweet uniform for the president necessarily. Now, as far as comp- comparing it to uh, comparable national executives, Hamilton is very careful to note that compared to the continental European powers, the office of commander-in-chief that really isn't all that impressive because there wasn't even an army really to command until Congress voted to raise an army. There wasn't money to pay a military until Congress approved that. So the commander-in-chief only became the commander-in-chief when Congress voted to make him commander It's one of those things where, again, uh, because in our lifetimes and really in the generation before us as well, all we've ever known is a large-standing American army, a large-standing American navy, a large-standing armed forces. Uh, this is something that, you know, were we to behold a country like this, it would seem very alien to us. Uh, so in other words, you know, once a war has started, uh, the U.S. president, you know, as, composed, as compared, say, to a consul of Rome, uh, would have dictatorial powers, right? Uh, there would be a single commander-in-chief instead of a pair of them with veto power. But that power can only last, according to the text of the Constitution, for two years. Uh, the army is disbanded unless Congress takes a vote to me together. All right. Uh, so again, you know, compared to the Continental Powers, it's almost nothing because they standing armies. Even compared to the King of England... Uh, who could raise an army without the say-so of Parliament. Uh, the Office of Commander-in-Chief is pretty limited. Uh, now, what's interesting, of course, at least as far down the line as Abraham Lincoln, uh, we actually get accounts of the president being the field commander for the armies. Uh, you know, that's something that, again, is alien to us. But again, since we live in an age of telecommunication where the president of the united states can communicate with field generals instantaneously uh you know commander-in-chief has i think and i'll let you guys disagree with me if you think this is wrong uh has become more of a ceremonial title than it is a functional battlefield title uh am i overplaying that guys or do you think you think it's right well i think the yeah the the, the last president that I know of that would have been qualified to function as a field commander would have been Eisenhower. Kennedy. Well, Kennedy was military, but he wasn't he wasn't a high enough ranking officer oh, to be you know, I'm not, I'm not I'm not just saying he had military experience. I'm saying, you know, who 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 had Someone the training to function general. as a field commander? Yeah, uh-huh. How high up did Carter get in the Navy? Not that high. Well, I mean, he didn't command, you know, one field of World War II. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, George, yeah, Car- George W. Bush was in the Texas Air Force, or the uh, Texas uh, Air Force Reserve. I think that should count. <laughs> well, it qualifies you to look great in a jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't want to downplay the the fact of of that particular power, but um, I, I don't think that qualifies. Qualifies to manage an army in the field. Right, right. And Jimmy Carter was a junior officer. Uh, his ultimate goal was to become chief of naval operations. I knew he had flat feet, and he wanted I, to join the. Um, he wanted to join the navy, so he rolled his arches over a coke bottle every day. Okay, he was a lieutenant when he was discharged. Discharged in '53. Okay. So. And then I think George H.W. Bush was also a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. And he was the head of the CIA, which is... Right, right. Okay, well, man, and, maybe, Anyway, yeah, it's, it's hard to argue that, that it's a ceremonial... It's anything other than a ceremonial position. Yeah. I agree. I mean, technically, the president can't even declare war, although that hasn't stopped anybody since Truman. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And thank you, Michael. I, f- I forgot that when I was doing that little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, the King of England can also declare war unilaterally, as can the crowned heads of the continent. 
whereas you're right, Michael, uh, for the U.S. president to become commander-in-chief, Congress has to declare war. Which is why we haven't had a declared war since World War II? Yeah, yeah. We'll sure. talk about that. We'll oh, talk about okay. that. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry. No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm itching to but, talk about it, clearly. Right, right. And, you know, that. well, I, mean, I guess we can talk about it now, but, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that, again, you know, uh, whether you argue that that is simple historical development uh, or whether that is usurpation of power, uh, the fact of the matter is, Michael, you're absolutely right that uh, the formal declaration of war has become a thing of the past. Uh, like you noted, I mean, it's been over 70 years now since a war, well, no, up on 70 years since the last war was declared by Congress. Now, there have been sort of votes to use police actions. There have been votes to, you know, authorize the use of force, as vague as that is. Uh, but, you know, as far as the, you know, delineated power of Congress to declare war, or uh, it's collecting dust on the shelf right now. Didn't uh, didn't Obama refer to the fake war in the the war not war in in Libya as a humanitarian action? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, they have to get you know more and more creative. You know, the actions in Vietnam were what military advisement roles. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it really is. You know, uh, and and like I said, I mean, you know the. The use of force against you know, enemies of the state, or however that vague resolution was worded in 2002-2003, uh, again, was not a declaration of war in the constitutional sense. But you know, people were people felt very free. I'll put it this way: to say that we were a nation at war after it was not declared by Congress. Well, though the though the not war was declared by Congress. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> they they So the the Congress did use their their power to declare not war. Yes. <laughs> they, they 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 approved they approved the military action or whatever, the use of force or whatever. Right, right. But as far as, you know, the 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 United States of America declares war on the sovereign state of Iraq, I don't believe that that actually came down the pike. Yeah. Not in so many words, no. But there was an awful lot of shooting. Seems, yeah, yeah. Seems like it. Seems like a lot of people died from that not war. Right. Yeah. So again, I mean, you know, and you know, Michael, I'll, I'll, I'll over to you because I mean, I, you know, I've sort of spent my fire on it, but you know, just to put my last one, it, you know, I mean, I do think that that is one of those places where the rise of the standing army in the 20th century has definitely changed the complexion of the presidency. Uh, because, you know, when the congressional power to declare war was in effect, the proper order of operations was to declare a war, then raise an army, then field the army under the command of the president. Of course, by the time that, you know, Congress took their vote to authorize the use of unpleasantness uh, against any enemies of the state in 2003. There were already a quarter million troops on the border ready to march. Right. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it almost became a thing. Oh, no, I won't say all, almost. It did thing where if you voted against that action, you were basically wasting the millions and millions of dollars that it took to deploy those troops already. Right. So... But th this is all part of the gradual increasing of the power of the executive branch. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Hamilton yeah. would not recognize it anymore, I suspect. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he would still approve of it, but it's certainly not the one he describes in uh, Article 69. Right, right. Well, it seems as if the, the president has not only the power to take the sword out of the sheath when permitted to do so, but also the power to put it back in. Um, so Michael, can you tell us about the president's power of pardon? Um, what kinds of criminal can a president or can't a president pardon? Well, um, here actually the, it is a relatively powerful power of pardon. That's a lot of peace. Um, because in, in, Hamil of in Hamilton's <laughs> word, 
humanity and good policy conspire to dictate that the benign prerogative of pardoning should be as little possible little as possible fettered or embarrassed in other words the president has so much pa pardoning power because they don't want abstract justice to be running roughshod over the citizens they, they want to have some quality of mercy something that stands outside of a system that will, <laughs> will, will allow people to uh, be pardoned if, if perhaps the, the, the punishment is too strong and uh, the framers of the constitution seem to believe that a single man would be more sensitive to cases where pardon was necessary than a committee would be although mm -hmm. I suspect that depends on the man yeah, yeah. Um, it is not an unlimited power. As I said earlier, the president cannot pardon anyone who is undergoing impeachment. Uh, and inter interestingly enough, he does have the power to pardon traitors. And, and people at the time really didn't want him to have this power uh, for reasons that should be obvious. But the idea is a good one, I think. It's that if there's a major sedition if the president can offer a quick pardon to all the traitors, it might end the conflict. And, of course, that is exactly what happened at the end of the Civil War. So Precisely. It ended, it ended up being a very good thing that the, the president had the power to pardon, the, uh, pardon traitors, or else the Civil War might have gone on for years longer than it did. Mm -hmm. It might be as long right. as the Iraq War. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, and here, Michael, I mean, is where I wanted to talk about the power to declare war because, again, to look at the way that Hamilton imagines this, you know, it takes the representatives of the entire elected legislative branch uh, to declare a war to, you know, start armed conflict, but one man can overturn a conviction. And, I mean, you know, that, that contrast, I mean, is just, just uh, that, you know, that they try and, you know, Again, as much as I have been guilty in the past of, you know, painting the enlightened with, with a broad brush, they turned out to be enlightened on some points. Uh, you know, the <laughs> idea that, you know, you have to have basically a critical mass of the people in order to start a war. Uh, but if the critical mass of the people revenge, one man could snatch a person out of the jaws of revenge. I think that's great. I really yeah. do. <laughs> Well, it was really interesting to me to see the the, the concern for due process, mm -hmm. oh yeah, yeah, convictions mm -hmm. and all all of that sort of thing. That how how painstaking, um, all of that side of uh, that side of justice is. But then, even if even if a conviction happens as a result of all this, that one power has uh, one one person has the power to overturn that. Mm -hmm. You know that that's that's really really interesting. So you know, I, I I I don't know. Maybe this was imagined to be the president's greatest power at the time. Oh, I think it should be. Yeah. Does, mm -hmm. Has every has every president pardoned people at the end of his term? Is is that a tradition that goes all the way back? That's the sort of thing I should have looked up. So far, I think so. The only I one I remember so, yeah. is is Clinton pardoning Mark Rich, because everybody right, assumed right. he was going to uh, pardon Leonard Peltier, and he pardoned Mark Rich, his old business associate. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe it's something that every president has taken advantage of, but I, I don't know that within a person offhand. Mm -hmm. So, Brad Warfield, if you're out there, you can lighten us on this because you've been I don't know if you guys have seen the blog comments but he's been taking me to task on my spotty civics <laughs> <laughs> well English English professors yeah we read the federalist papers that's that or we read some of yeah, them not even the I read thing. some of them not even, right, not right. even a fifth of the whole thing right yeah yeah are you doing this again? No. Yeah, because um, <laughs> we're the Christian Humanist Podcast. We <laughs> that is, that yeah. is right. We do that, get into other people's backyards. Right. And play that whole liberal toys. arts lifelong learning thing. Yeah, we yeah. actually believe in it here. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. So, so pardon us, Brad. Oh, I get but that. Only, but only if you're president. I see what um, you did there. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's a, it's well, forever. 
Well, can we shift to one of the less interesting powers? Oh, yes. if I can disagree that it's uh, uninteresting. Okay. Well, I've never really found the president's power to appoint people very interesting, but apparently Publius disagrees because he expends so daggum much ink on describing this power. Um, I mean, do you have to be an 18th century policy wonk to appreciate this? Or is it actually cool? I, I think if you put it in contrast with, again, the crown heads of Europe, it really is fascinating that there is a body uh, that has to consent to the president's inner circle of advisors uh, and moreover to the uh, justices on the Supreme Court. Now, I, you know, I've read the Supreme Court parts of the Federalist Papers, you know, the powers that we have invested in the Supreme Court since 1787 have vastly expanded, kind of like the power of the executive. But even so, uh, you know, Publius, you know, Hamilton and Madison mainly, uh, although John Jay gets on that end, uh, are very careful to say that, you know, those judges, because they are the court of the land, uh, really have to be approved not just by the chief executive, but also by the representatives of the people. Now, the reason that this is interesting to me, David, is that, again, if you look at the monarchs of Europe at the time, you know, they would inevitably surround themselves with flatterers, with courtiers, you know, whatever people amuse them at the moment. Uh, whereas, by contrast, the American Constitution just takes this very, very seriously that, you know, if a president has to appoint somebody... Uh, while Congress is in recess, then that person only holds that advisor role until the next Congress convenes, that you absolutely cannot have a circle of advisors that haven't been approved by the legislature. So, you know, again, the fact that at every step, and we've hit this over and over in this series, at every step, there are balances to power, right? You know, not even... What happens in the White House is the business strictly of the White House. It's also the business of the Congress. Uh, it's something that's just very impressive uh, given the course of human history up to that point. And again, I, I think it is sort of the genius of the con uh, Constitutional Congress, uh, of the Publius boys in particular, uh, that again, they can see far enough down the line because they have studied their history uh, that whatever latitude you give individuals to consolidate power, they will grasp it and they will seize it. And they are trying to structure this so that at every point there are checks. Like Michael said, you know, that, or I think it was Michael, it might have been you, David, uh, that word check means a stop. So, you know, if you start to overreach, there are always people in this system who can say So, I mean... That, that's why I like this power, David. I mean, not because it's a power, but because it did power. Okay. So that one day President Caligula doesn't nominate his horse to be the Supreme Justice. Precisely. Awesome. Okay. How'd that guy get elected to begin with, though? Uh, he had cool boots. That is true. That is true. There's no denying the boots. Um. Well, or Latin Hubert. Yes, that was a classics joke. Um, <laughs> look it up. Uh, well, all right. Well, I guess, I guess this is a this is a more interesting power than I had previously thought. Now, of course, you know I, I go into this with the the kind of childlike wonder at the president's ability to, you know, do wars and not kind of bored by their <laughs> ability to like nominate the head of the State Department. But okay. Right. You have resigned me to it. Um, <laughs> well, it looks as if we're actually going to be finishing up a little bit early today, which, uh, wow. Would it, I don't know that we're going to get in under an hour, but, but Well, that cool. other two episodes went to almost an hour and 20 minutes, so. Yeah. Well, it's a good balance because, you know, since uh, contemporary federal politics are so obsessed with the president and couldn't care less about Congress, we have done our little part in reversing that. Yes. We love Congress. And like everybody else, we, we completely ignored the Supreme Court. Yeah, well. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't read one article from John Jay. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, nobody's electing Supreme Court justices this year, so. <laughs> Although they, yeah. uh, you know, last yesterday they voted on overturning affirmative action, so it's not like they're not in the news. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess this is this is the the end of our final installment of our politics uh, politics triptych this uh, this season. Yeah. Hey. So, and I and I just assume this be a bit less gloomy than the last two were. Um, I don't know. So, are there any presidents who we can celebrate or remember for their good use of the powers that we've discussed? Um, good commanders in chief, or good partners, or good good appointers, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, which, which whichever those you know you know steer steer some love towards some presidents that. You know, maybe aren't on coins or things like that. Michael? I read a book a few years ago by an Irish statesman named Conor Cruz O'Brien. And he says there were only four presidents in American history who cared about statecraft more than they cared about getting elected. Uh, Washington, Lincoln, FDR, and Eisenhower. And, you know, the first three have been praised to death. I had not heard anybody praise Eisenhower so heavily, so I was interested. And he says that the the thing that impressed him about Eisenhower was one action. It's late 1956, Eisenhower's about to be reelected, and Britain, France, and Israel collude to invade Egypt and take back the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically they thought Eisenhower wouldn't have the guts to do anything about it because he needed to win... New York State, Illinois, and uh, California to win the election, and those three states have heavy Jewish populations who wouldn't like him standing up to Israel. All right, now just a second, Michael. You're saying that European powers wanted to invade a Middle Eastern country and America stepped in to stop? (laughs) Uh, Yes, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, I okay, I'm sorry. The 50s were a bizarro world. And, and, and yeah, they miscalculated because Eisenhower came in and told them all to go to hell, basically. And he, he, he told Israel in particular that if they didn't get out of there, he was basically going to abandon them to the USSR. And so, you know, they pulled out, they did what he said, and uh, he won the re-election anyway. But this impressed O'Brien so much that O'Brien... Um, had so little nice to say about most of the presidents that that has stuck with me ever since, and I have always mm. kind of liked Eisenhower. And with him, I would like to defend his vice president, Richard Nixon, who has gone down in history as maybe the worst man to ever be president. And and I don't I don't doubt that he was a bad person, Nixon, and I don't doubt that he did <laughs> most. Of, I don't I don't doubt that he did most of what he did for terrible reasons, but I've been thinking about him lately in connection with this Enlightenment idea of the system that cor- uh, that corrects its uh, citizens. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Nixon, despite not being a great guy and despite going in with the worst of all intentions, did a number of really great things, kind of despite himself. Pulled us out of Vietnam for all the wrong reasons, but it worked. Uh, Open trade with China. Again, for reasons I don't think were probably great, but which, uh, you know, ended up being a pretty good thing. And uh, most impressively, during the oil crisis, uh, the the initial oil crisis in the early 70s, Nixon's response was to tell Americans to stop using so much oil, to to conserve, to cut back on their lifestyle, uh, instead of saying, let's go in and get more oil from someone else, which oddly enough is exactly what Carter did. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I, I just wanted to defend Nixon, who gets a bad rep for being, uh, let, let's face it, uh, an unpleasant person, unattractive, nervous, not not a not a great uh, public speaker, but uh, did some things that I think are worth looking at again. Easily translated into a Halloween mask. That's true. <laughs> he, he looked like a cartoon character, spoke like a cartoon character. And I don't want, like I said, I don't want to defend him morally at all, but I think. Somehow, the system worked with Nixon to to the point where he did some really great things. Right. Well, David, the people of America need to know if they're president. Well, yes, yes, he ought to he ought to tell them that he's not a crook. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. My, Michael's singing his praises, and we're reciting his most memorable and unfortunate. 
speech, you, Uncle. You, you have to say it like Nixon, though. You're not. You're not. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> You have to shake your head. So if you if you heard a if you heard a rustling when I did that, it's because I'm wearing a headset microphone. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take another couple of presidents that generally aren't very popular, uh, especially among a certain contemporary political faction. Uh, but they're actually from both of the current major political parties. Is Gerald Ford. Uh, the other one is Jimmy Carter. And the reason that I think that they used an actual delineated power of the president well uh is that uh gerald ford offered a limited clemency to and jimmy carter extended a full pardon to uh those who fled the country and otherwise avoided the draft for the vietnam not war uh and the reason that i think this was a good use of the pardon a few things first of all um as michael said with the end of the civil war i mean this was something where a significant hunk of a very large demographic population uh, would have been basically exiled permanently and or imprisoned uh, because of this. And, you know, I mean, this was a, I, I, I was, goodness. No, I wasn't even born when this happened. But uh, when, the, when the Gerald Ford thing was, and I was an infant when the Carter one happened, um, you know this this couldn't have been popular among large chunks of the population and yet again this is an actual power of the president as delineated in the constitution i think they used it well the the other thing is that you know this was whether they framed it this way or not and again if we've got any contemporary american historians out there uh who can fill me in on this i did a little bit of spotty research but i was you know trying to grade papers as well so i didn't dig really deep uh this was something that at least structurally was an acknowledgement that the vietnam era you know was something where again no war was declared uh you know the whole constitutionality of the thing was shaky i think historically speaking and you know this pardon sort of said all right uh let's sort of clear the slate on the folks who were drafted on it so that we can start to do something new now that it's over. So again, you know, it's one of those things where, again, because I don't think that initiating warfare is a power of the president, but I do think that pardoning is a power of the president. I want to hold up Ford and Carter as people who understood the limitations of the presidency, at least in that action, and used it well. Although, like Michael said, Carter had other problems. But we won't talk about those right now because David wants us to be positive. Well, you'll so find, David, you'll find very few people who who say that Carter is anything other than a good man. Whatever you think about his presidency, mm-hmm. he's kind of the yeah. opposite of Nixon. Right, right. <laughs> who was a very good president, but on the moral end was a little bit shaky. Possibly not a great man. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> um. Well, my, mine one one is it, it's it's undeniable the impact of of the. Uh, I was a little afraid that you were going to uh, uh, when you were talking about Eisenhower, Michael. That that this is what you need to bring up, um, but you didn't, so I can. Um, he's the one who uh, he's pointed Earl Warren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You know, Miranda writes, Brown v. Board, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not every, you know, not every uh, one of his, uh, of the uh, landmark cases of his court is, is one that is best beloved in, in every, you know, every political faction ever. And the John Birchers just hated the guy. <laughs> but also, did you did you know that he was a major proponent of Japanese internment camps during World War One mm-hmm. or World War Two, rather? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, rem- I remember. I remember. I was reading that, but I mean, talk about the talk about the influence of, of the power of appointment from Eisenhower, right there. I mean, that was like one thing that he did, and you know, Brown v. Board is big. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, Miranda rights are big, and that's and those are just two, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so yeah, that, and you know, in in general, I'd say that you know, you know, if 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 if, if only we can point to those, I'd say that that uh, Warren, you know, Warren Warren's court had a uh, an impact for good, though, I, you know, I don't, you know. Anyway, I'm not. I'm not go. I'm not go through every single one of his cases and give it the grubs imprimatur. Um, for one thing, I'm not a good enough lawyer. <laughs> but uh, also, Jefferson doesn't really get much uh, recognition as a commander in chief. Um, but he's the one who actually authorized our first foreign not. <laughs> All right, uh, the first bar in which actually. Congress didn't officially declare war. Oh, really? I thought they did. They authorized a military action, but they didn't vote for a formal declaration of war. I'll be, I never knew that. Yeah. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that uh, the Barbary states had themselves declared war. So <laughs> maybe that makes a difference. But uh, yeah, when you when uh, whenever you hear the Marine hymn and they talk about the shores of Tripoli, well, that was uh, that's that's about when Jefferson uh, sent the the infant American Navy and Marines to go you know kick the butts of the Barbary pirates who were interfering with uh, with shipping in the Mediterranean and mm-hmm. North Africa. So right. So yeah, Jefferson as our was our first. Uh, not war president. <laughs> O'Brien O'Brien saves a special amount of scorn for Thomas Jefferson. Calls him the model for all the uh, politicians who come after him. I'll be. Wait, is that scorn? Yeah, yeah. He's opposing the politician to the statesman. Ah, okay. All right. Well, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I just happen to think that the Barbary pirates needed their butts kicked. Probably. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, that that ends our our politics for the for the uh, for the semester and our triptych for the semester. Um, and next week we move on to something else. Which what is it that we're moving on to? Is it is it Nathan? Are you are you the one at the home? I will be at the steering wheel next week, and we'll be having a conversation about the game of chess. Neat. Do you play chess, Michael? Uh, I haven't played chess in a long time. Mm. Me either. Guess I'll have to brush up. (laughs) I remember the moves. Uh, I always think the pieces look neat, so... Clearly, clearly, I'm going to have to be smarter about this next week. <laughs> <laughs> I like the shapes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in the meanwhile, listeners, uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't listened to the first two, go back and review those, and you know, appreciate a Christian humanist podcast civics class and in, in all its wondrous and very specific glory. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, if you want to school us about our uh, uh, our, our our civics failings, um, if we're just not, you know, schoolhouse rocking enough for you, um, let us know about it. You can post comments on the show notes and the blog uh, when they post at uh, christianhumanist.org, or you can send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or post on our Facebook wall and. While you're posting on our Facebook wall, you could also like us or friend us. You know, we like that kind of thing. We like being liked and we like friends. <laughs> We're human that way. In the meanwhile, I wish you all grand weeks. And I'm David Grubbs uh, on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, leaving you with good advice from Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger.
capital. 